no. I just knocked down my research. Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Live. I'm just finishing dinner. A hot dog with spinach. Yeah, baby. Health food. What is this? Okay. Hang on. I'm just a couple minutes early. Sorry to finish eating, but I'm hungry. Only on back, only on the backyard professor life can someone get away with this kind of crap. Slopping all over the place. God, bro, guys. Hey, Doug Benson, welcome. Tim Rathbone, smash that like button. Hey, Mark Crispin, Mr. Raver, good to see you, buddy. Aliza. Sorry, I'm talking with my mouth full. Buddy boy. Hey, everybody, splunky doink. All right. Hang on. I have a great topic tonight. <laughs> However, <laughs> got to get my energy up, right? Yeah. Woohoo! Here's to the backyard professor live audience. Without you, I don't rock. With you, we can accomplish anything, right? Yeah, that's the idea. I'm eating as fast as I can, I promise. Oh, I've, I've still got two minutes before it gets official, so. Patty Cake, welcome. Dan Bogle. I'm just finishing supper. <clears throat> Jay Bear, good to see you. Lorena, good to see you. Peter Higgs, good morning, Monday morning. Don't eat a hot dog with spinach, Peter, for breakfast. <coughs> this is my dinner. Oh, no. I'm dropping all over the place. This is a disaster. You can't tell what I'm saying anyway. All right. One more minute and I got to have this down me. Hey, this is... <coughs> this is better entertainment than listening to that music anyway, right? Grant, good to see you. Grant Gilbert, welcome. Looks like you guys are showing up. <coughs> wow, a swallow. <coughs> Crap, I swallowed my hot dog wrong. This is a disaster of magnitudinal. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, baby. Uh-huh. Only at the backyard professor. Yeah, baby. Oh my. Someone's yelling at me. Uh-oh, it's 6 o'clock. That's probably my alarm. Hang on, and I'll see who's yelling at me. <clears throat> okay. Hey.
hey, let's, uh, <coughs> man, sorry about that. I should mute it when I have to hack and cough like that. All right. Everybody alive and well and ready. Wendy rolling. Right now. Yeah. Good job. Good job. Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> yeah. Heimlich maneuver. <laughs> Whoops. The wrong Heimlich. Oh, I've got a great job. <coughs> Crap. Do not swallow your hot dog down the wrong pipe, man. Oh. Okay. Let's calm down, everybody. It's time to get serious. Yeah, well, you know how that goes. So how's everybody week been? Hopefully you've all had a great week. I've had a good week. It's been rainy today. And I confess I took a Sunday afternoon nap, which makes me feel really good. Instead of eating dinner, I took a nap. And that's why I was, you know, behind on pigging out your baby. So. Okay, this topic <clears throat> is a <clears throat> perpetually fascinating one. It never stops giving pleasure because new information <clears throat> is always being found or, <laughs> better yet, the old information on Mormonism and Masonry, or else the magical connections in Masonry, or else the magical connections in Mormonism, early Mormonism, or the magical connections between Masonry and Mormonism, or the connections between the Mormon Temple Endowment and Masonry. There is just a it's uh, it's not a flood, but there is just constant new information. And I think there's enough here. Tonight I can give you an introduction, but there's no way I can give you all the fantastic amounts of information in just one setting. Uh, there's too many... <laughs> There's too many conspiracies. There's too, there's too many really strong parallels that just on its own singular individual basis is worth pursuing in fantastic historic detail on, on some of the on some of the ideas. Uh, and so what I'll do is I, I believe if if you guys would like. I can do a, you know how I did a series on the Joseph Smith papyri. I can do a series here on Mormonism, Freemasonry, and magic. <coughs> wow, I shouldn't have ate so fast. I apologize. I feel terrible, but I will get over it. So uh, if you guys would like to have more ideas on uh, Freemasonry, the parallels. <clears throat> I will be happy to do so. Let me know in the comments. There are three things that I want you to come away tonight knowing. The Mormon, number one, 
The Mormon Temple Endowment is Freemasonry adopted and adapted. There can be no question about that. The evidence is in, and we now have it as firm as we have Joseph Smith translating the Egyptian papyri into something that's not in the papyri. We know the book of Abraham is not in the papyri. We know that masonry is in the endowment. <clears throat> the second thing that I want you to, to come away with tonight is Joseph Smith's environment. That is the D. Michael Quinn called it the worldview, right? The magic slash Freemason environment is what he used, as many early Mormons also used and agreed to and lived in and lived with, as far as that goes. It was not considered an evil liability. Now, that, quote, anti-Mormon view, when I was a teenager in the 70s, uh, this subject was considered taboo, and I'll demonstrate that tonight with some really powerful evidence. It was considered anti-Mormon. It's not evil. The official Mormon interpretation uh, against <clears throat> Joseph Smith's treasure-seeking, treasure-digging, magic involvement with talismans, etc., and his joining Freemasonry, and the influence of Freemasonry is not evil. That's the second thing that you'll come away with tonight. The third item that I want you to come away with is the Mormon church's paranoia of the magic slash masonry environment is unwarranted. And I will propose that it is because of just simply misunderstanding and ignorance on the leader's part. Their particular interpretation of the concept of, oh, well, pick a topic, revelation from heaven to uh, the prophet Joseph Smith. The theme of nothing can rival the restoration that was called Mormonism before Jesus woke up and realized he was giving Satan so many victories. And so he told his prophet Nelson there in Salt Lake a couple years ago, I want my name emphasized. Dad gummit, I'm important. Emphasize my name. Quit giving a victory to Satan by calling it Mormonism, right? So the lack of, uh, say, historic context and grasping of the leaders becomes really obvious once we explore the evidence of the relationship 
And the definite, well, I'll say inter interdependence, I'll put it that way, of, of Masonry and Mormonism and the interdependence of magic and Mormonism. It's all of the same cloth. And that cloth is Joseph Smith's environment. And the example I can give you is my teenage years. The, uh, the theme, the idea was, the, the, this was always in the background with every uh, lesson, uh, with every talk, with every book, more or less. Back in the good old days of LeGrand Richards and Bruce R. McConkie and Mark E. Peterson. Yeah, that era. I was fortunate to be a teenager. Boyd K. Packer just had barely showed up on the scene. And uh, so that was the era. And uh, the idea was Joseph Smith was given pristine revelation. The, the information that came from heaven to Joseph Smith was unique, except that it used to be had way back when in early Christianity, in Jesus' day. And then after the apostles died, of course, the great apostasy. Well, that actually discouraged me from studying anything from 180 up to 1805. I, I never did do a very good study of the Renaissance or the or the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, uh, the Age of Enlightenment. The uh, none of that. Uh, I'm still not very familiar with them, although I've been trying to catch up like crazy. And so, of course, that's the era where Masonry took its rise. So there's no way I could have known anything about Freemasonry other than what I was told. And what I was told was Satan will have his imitations. Every true revelation, all the true light and knowledge that Joseph Smith receives from God in a vacuum, they didn't put it that way, I agree, but that was the implication. This was the philosophical background. This was the cultural spread in Joseph Smith's day, is that Joseph Smith was a nice, tender, youthful, righteous boy who was confused, and so he went and asked Heavenly Father for light and knowledge and understanding, and Heavenly Father gave it to him, and Heavenly Father guided him step by step, beginning with the first vision, to show what kind of deity prevails in the universe, right? And then, of course, the angel Moroni and the Book of Mormon. And then after that was translated by the gift and power of God, then you receive, of course, the church had to begin, you know. Well, that calls for a lot of modern revelation. Uh, what offices do we need, Lord? Um, what do we do? Where do we go? Uh, how do we know it, it's true, etc.? And so this constant daily guidance came because Joseph Smith had nowhere else to turn for information except God, and God lovingly obliged and gave him revelation upon revelation upon revelation. And it didn't matter about the most trivial stuff. Uh, 
oh, hey, Orson Hyde asked me a question about this or that. Or, you know, there's a Brother Brown who is interpreting the book of Revelation in this manner. Is that true? Uh, how would I, how should I approach that? You know, uh, where am I going to send Orson Pratt? He's being obnoxious and he wants to go on a mission and so on. <laughs> What quorum of the 12 apostles? Who do I choose? And, you know, how do I call them? And, oh, hey, we need some money, Lord. Oh, you want us to sell the copyright of the Book of Mormon? Okay, gentlemen, Oliver Cowdery, you're, you're, get some of my witnesses and go sell it up in Canada, et cetera. All of these, really, truly, the impression I grew up with was actual daily revelation. The Lord was running his church on a step-by-step -step daily basis. And it's, yeah, Joseph Smith was alive. He was in his environment. He was, you know, we had to eat and, and get fresh water, milk the cows, farm the farm, etc., build some houses, build a city, translate books, write down scripture, etc. But it's this daily concourse from heaven to Joseph Smith is where his knowledge came from. And it was that pristine information coming from here and going out to you, the world. There was very precious little said about the environment. Uh, the influence on Joseph Smith came from Elohim and Jehovah through Revelation. That is how I was raised. Now, any of you who were, well, I was in my teenage years in the 70s. Any of you who were raised in the 1970s know what I'm saying. You remember Marky e. Peterson's evidences. He wrote that corny little book on the evidences of the Book of Mormon and archaeology. And, and I think he did one on Adam God trying to straighten out the doctrine. And, and he did some, some books on very many biblical personalities. Of course, you have LeGrand Richards, the biblical scholar, marvelous work of the wonder, and Israel, do you know? You know, those kind of books. And then, of course, Bruce R. McConkey, Mormon doctrine. This is the doctrine, brethren. That, that deliberate crafted ideology sticks with you when you're raised in it. And of course, by the time I went on my mission, it was pretty well drummed into me. And that was what I taught. Yeah. I really didn't, it, it, when I came back and ended up getting married and uh, basically for four and a half years, and then I went through a, a horrible divorce and a horrible time that way. And I felt guilty. So I tried to become an apologist to defend the faith, to prove the Lord, to the Lord that I was worthy of his blessings, et cetera, you know. And uh, it was, it, it was, I had discovered Hugh Nibley, so I had begun getting a broader implication, but all of his ideology and thrust, his philosophical theme was, how could Joseph Smith have known all this? Now, to a young, impressionable mind who had just got off a mission, that's some pretty hearty stuff. I mean, that is the stew. That is the meat and taters. That is beyond the milk. When he began finding the parallels in the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
wow, when he described the theme of the ancient Christian baptism for the dead. Wow. When he described the ancient concepts of the sticks of Ezekiel as literally having forerunners in ancient history in ancient Israel and ancient Babylonia, etc. Wow. When he came up with the papyri, and he began to discuss Joseph Smith in the message of the Joseph Smith papyri. It was so deep the first time through, none of us grasped it, right? <laughs> I persevered and read it the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth. It was along the eighth, ninth, and tenth times where it dawned on me the serious, magnificent significance of the ancient Egyptian parallels and materials. But he never, well, it was his Myth Makers and the, uh, the book on the uh, Brigham Young stuff, his look at the animal, and then, of course, his diatribe against Fawn Brody, etc. He was of the firm belief that there's nothing worth looking at, so just mock it in the daily environment that Joseph Smith lived in and existed in. Oh, no, no, you can't go to that. Go to the ancient stuff, because why? This is a restoration of the ancient stuff. So this emphasis became on antiquity as the basis for authenticity. And so, of course, by default, nothing in Joseph Smith's environment was worth looking at. Mock it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, there's parallels. Both men in Joseph Smith's day have two legs, you know. Yeah. Uh, gee, they both get thirsty. They both drink water, you know. Superficial, worthless parallels. But look at this parallel with the Book of Mormon and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Wow. And then Sorensen and Farms come along. Look at the parallels with the Book of Mormon and Mesoamerica. There are cities of cement down there, just like the Book of Mormon said there was. This is true because it is ancient. You remember all that noise? Yeah. Nobody ever bothered, really, to look at the environmental factors right there in Joseph Smith's day and city and time. And that is why... When the Tanners came out, and I believe it was in the 70s, that was why when the Tanners came out with this, what was the name of it? Uh, Mormonism, Magic and Masonry, or else it was Mormonism, Masonry, and Magic, kind of like my title. <laughs> I didn't make that title for this to mock the Tanners. It's just that those are very interesting subjects. And of course, I was told as a teenager, oh, no, 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 don't read them. 
Don't read the Tanners. Don't read Waldemar. No, those are the anti-Mormons. They are there to destroy your testimony. What we need to do is keep reading the scriptures 15 minutes a day. How many of you went to seminary and remember doing the scriptures chases, right? And you memorize five or six little one and two verse scriptures, and then you parallel them and all that. I got halfway good. I wasn't the best scripture chaser, but I got pretty doggone good, right? And so, so you, you were given the impression by studying the scripture, you would have the Holy Spirit with you at all times to testify to you, of course, of the truth of how the church taught about Joseph Smith and why his knowledge was superior. Because, of course, he didn't take it, you know, the Solomon Spalding in view of the Hebrews. All of that noise is bunk. The Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God with the seer stones, the Urim and Thummim. And so this came directly from God. There was very little environmental influence emphasized at all, right? Nibley completely skips Freemasonry in the message of the Joseph Smith Papyri. It is as if Freemasonry and magic didn't even exist. He mocked it a little bit in the Mythmakers, but he wouldn't take a serious stab at it. No one did until D. Michael Quinn. But Nibley made a big foo and a big splash with his message of the Joseph Smith Papyri because when you see some of those pictures, hold on, let me show you this just real quick. Uh, when you see some of the pictures, oh man, where did I put it? No. Oh, hold on. It's over here. Hold on. I'm still here. I'm with you. I got to do my backyard professor thing, you know. Okay. Now I've got the, I've got the original edition. Uh, it's around here somewhere, the old brown one of the message of the Joseph Papyri. And then this is the second edition, which was enhanced and corrected, supposedly, by John Gee and Michael Dennis Rhodes. Uh, though Robert Rittner showed that their Egyptology still sucked, even after they had 10 years to upgrade it. But the one thing they did do in this book, really, truly, in the message, the second edition, they really did improve the the uh, pictures with the parallels. Uh, and it, it was fantastic. They had some good Egyptian pictures. Now, let me show you this one. Well, I mean, you know, this, this is the late bronze. See, this is the late Roman bronze showing Jupiter Heliopolite. Palitanus with his uplifted right arm. And you can see that right there. Some of those pictures are so spectacular. And of course, he's tying this. He's not uh, giving you specific parallels with the endowment, right? But he is showing how through his very careful selection of disparate texts in both place and time. Some of his Egyptian texts were from 800 BC in a particular part of Egypt, and other ones were from 20, 
200 BC in a completely different part of Egypt, in a completely different dynasty, not having the same meaning at all. Well, of course, a young guy like myself, I didn't know all that lousy methodological sloppiness. I was blown away by the pictures. Look at those. Yeah, that's called the five degrees of fellowship in masonry. Nibley never mentions that. He never mentions the handshakes, the five degrees of fellowship. He never mentions anything about masonry. He only shows you the Egyptian side, giving you the impression that there is nothing in Joseph Smith's environment. The endowment only goes back to antiquity. And then his appendices, he does five different appendices from the various Gnostic Nag Hammadi codices, the Cyril of Jerusalem's lectures, the early Christian materials, etc. He won't even touch Freemasonry in here. And I didn't know a thing about Freemasonry anyway. And so the parallels were simply mind-boggling and staggering. You know, and of course, the famous papyrological uh, snake tempting Eve and then the Enoch pillar, Eve in the garden, the fall of man, the flaming sword. You know, this is the garden story. He ties it in with the biblical themes, right, the endowment, beginning with Adam, Atum, A-T-U-M, the Egyptian Atum, equals the biblical Adam and the fall of man. You talk about the creation and the resurrection of man, you know, and the arms held up, you know. You think I'm kidding, don't you? He has all kinds of cool parallels, right? So the, the point is, from that time on, this made such an impression on the scholarship, uh, the LDS scholarship, that everybody started to jump back into antiquity immediately when you say the word endowment. Bam! Go to the ancient world. Temple. Bam! Go to the ancient Babylonians. Talk about, talk about Solomon's ancient temple. Uh, talk about uh, the ancient materials in the early Christians. Uh, translate the Greek texts from the Greek magical papyri, etc. Nobody mentions masonry. And yet, that is where Joseph Smith got the endowment. Here's to a genius. Look, love him or hate him, that kid could really put two and two together and come up with 19. I'm telling you. So let's take a look. 1974. Now, this was just when I was entering high school, and I vaguely remember something along this line. This was the situation where we were warned that even Mormons were being deceived by the anti-Mormon literature about uh, something they called Freemasonry. And that was the only thing I knew about it is it's the devil's imitation. And some Mormons, 
you're going to, you may run into this. We actually had a seminary discussion on this. Uh, it wasn't in any kind of depth or detail. We certainly did not go through this talk by Reed C. Durham. He was the associate, he was the president of the American Historical Association. He gave a talk in 1974, Is There No Help for the Widow's Son? Now, in this discussion, the 74 is a long time ago, right? You know, that's quite a while ago. I don't know who of you have uh, read this or not. Um, I'm going to just highlight some of the themes on purpose because of in 1974, this was apostate hearsay. And this was seen as a dire threat to Joseph Smith receiving the pristine revelation and the truth from heaven. And Durham, after he gave this talk, he got in very serious trouble. The CES, the church education system, reprimanded him and he had to write an apology and... I think one of you are trying to talk to me. Hold on. Let me see who's saying what. So he apologized for it. He ended up bearing his testimony and he dropped the whole thing. He never brought it up again ever publicly. He never discussed it. Now, when, when a religion imagines that it can use its authority to force its scholars, and we do have evidence with this Durham issue, to recant what the evidence demonstrates, and then it encourages its own scholars to refute Durham, and they tried... But quite frankly, LDS apologetics refutation of Durham sucks. It's positively ridiculous. It's stupid beyond dumb. Matt Brown should have known better. Uh, he died a few years back, unfortunately. I took issue with him when I became a Freemason on his really ridiculous, stupid diatribes about Masonry and Mormonism. Um, he didn't have a clue because he wasn't a Freemason. I became a Freemason, so I went through the experiences, and I can tell you flat out from my experience, I know because I went through both of them. I experienced the signs, tokens, and penalties in the Mormon endowment and in Freemasonry. I know. There is an organic connection there. Now, it's true. Joseph Smith's interpretation differed a bit, but the actual execution, the ritual, the themes, and there are dozens of Masonic themes. Durham brought out quite a few of them that I want to share with you tonight, and I will share more of this in, the, in this series. 
that are also prominent in masonry, and it did not begin in Nauvoo. It was not a late comer to the scene, I'll put it that way. And that, of course, is today's current. Actually, there's not a lot of apologetic going on at this point. I mean, there's a few uh, LDS scholars who are still, I think uh, there's been a few articles in Dan Peterson's online journal, The Interpreter, discussing Masonry and Mormonism. And I think what they're doing is just, they're still trying to downplay the significant brotherhood, no pun intended, between Masonry and Mormonism. <laughs> and it just came to me. You know, Joseph Smith said, when you feel the pure flow of intelligence, that's a revelation. There you go. You've just witnessed the backyard professor receiving a revelation. Thank you. That's how this works. I think Joseph Smith actually got to the point where he believed Every thought he ever got was the pure flow of intelligence, and therefore God was constantly revealing stuff to him. I don't think he understood how the Holy Ghost works. He loved to teach others about how it was supposed to work, and then they, of course, took the ball and ran with it, you know. As did the Lafferty's and Daybells of our day, and the Warren Jeffs, etc., right? So you got, it's, it's a double-edged sword, man, this concept of revelation. Let me share a few ideas of Durham. I am convinced that the study of masonry lies a pivotal key to future understanding of Joseph Smith and the church. And this is what began to get him in trouble. Masonry in the church has its origin prior to Joseph Smith becoming a Mason. For instance, his brother Hiram Smith became a Freemason at about the same time Moroni was showing Joseph Smith the golden plates. And so there's that right directly smack dab in his family, right? So there's that. And the Masonic influence on Joseph was further highlighted when the heated anti-Masonic crusades tore through early America because of the murder of William Morgan. Yeah, it was ripe with things Masonic, pro-Mason and anti-Mormon. Morgan uh, exposed Masonry and he was kidnapped and presumably murdered. No one ever found the body, etc. It is very interesting that he was a contemporary both in time and place with Joseph Smith. And in fact, there has been some speculation that they actually knew each other. And if they didn't know each other, Morgan's widow married a man whom became neighbors with Joseph Smith and who became very, very high prominent in Mormonism. And later on, Joseph Smith married Morgan's wife as one of his own plural wives. Now, that's a pretty stout connection, <laughs> right? I mean, wow. You go, holy Shishka and Bob. Yes, they're still brothers, Shishka and Bob. So that's amazing. The many parallels found between early Mormonism and the masonry of that day are substantial. There's conferences, there's councils, priesthood, temples, anointing, anointing with oil, the issuance of licenses, certificates for identifying legitimate fellow workers, elders, high priests, and even the book of the law. 
So the philosophical, the thematic aspects of masonry are found throughout Mormonism. No question. At the end of 1832, Joseph Smith. Now, this was, I remember when I first uh, began to discover this, and it still kind of stuns me as to how ignorant the church in its authoritative stance of dictating what history is and what history isn't allowed in trying to tell us what really happened when, in fact, we now know they're either lying or they're so cotton-picking incompetent and, and uninspired that they shouldn't be leaders of the church anymore. But here is a concept that shocked me. Joseph Smith welcomed new brethren in 1832, along with their influence into the church. William W. Phelps, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Newell K. Whitney. Every one of these were deeply involved in masonry, and they became Joseph Smith's best friends, followers, and supporters throughout his life. Very interesting. Fascinating. I mean, these are not just ne'er-do-wells who sit in the back seats at sacrament meeting and skip out real quick before the, the closing prayer like we used to as teenagers. These are the men who were sitting on the stand with Joseph Smith helping conduct the church in the councils, in the leadership positions. Same in the masonry. So th this is not just Mickey Mouse stuff here. The Kirtland Temple also reflected the influence of masonry, though not exactly like the Masonic pattern of laying and dedicating cornerstones of their temples. The order of the holy priesthood employed by the prophet, the order of the holy priesthood that was employed by the prophet in laying the cornerstones of the Kirtland Temple, and about which he explained in great detail in Nauvoo, with a set ceremony at each corner, with pomp and procession, including definite rank of authority, was significantly similar. That the inner courts of the temple were fashioned in such a way that Offices, officers could preside on platforms at either end. East or West was also similar to Masonic lodges and temples. Very important. The actual physical layout of the temple. Very significant and important. In 1838, Avard began the Danites, and with the Danites, and this came back to bite Joseph Smith, but this disconsolation upon the prophet, their use of secret penal oaths accompanied with signs, hand clasps, and tokens, these involved and reflected Masonic life practices as well. Very interesting, isn't it? Before being imprisoned in Missouri, Joseph and his family lived in the Harris home at Far West. A Masonic aura certainly abided there. The woman of the house was Lucinda Pendleton Morgan Harris. 
who was at that time the wife of George Washington Harris, one of the leading elders of the Mormon church. He had been a practicing Mason in Batavia, New York, as well as a worshipful master Mason in Virginia. In addition to this, Harris was also personally acquainted with William Morgan. The Morgans having lived in an apartment above Harris's silversmith shop. Uh, Lucinda Harris was formerly the wife and later the widow of William Morgan. It seems highly significant to note that this woman, whom Joseph Smith had befriended years before, became a plural wife of the prophet, Joseph Smith. Now, another interesting, as our... Uh, as our knowledge improves and increases with Masonry and with the involvement in early Mormonism of Masonry and some of the players in the connecting of uh, the symbolism, the meanings, the mythology uh, of Masonry as that began to become incorporated into Mormonism, and it is reflected in several ways that Joseph gave his sermons with certain words he picked and chose when he addressed the Relief Society, etc. It is the prominent brethren who Joseph Smith is associating with that are always influencing Joseph Smith whether it concerns angels and how to detect them from false ones, whether it concerns priesthood, higher and lower priesthoods, whether it concerns missions to the Lamanites, whether it concerns running for the office of president of the United States, whether it concerns bringing in the Freemasons within the fold. And in fact, in our lovely town of Nauvoo, why don't we try to open a Masonic Lodge ourselves? The man who was responsible for that was John C. Bennett. Very interesting a former active leader in Masonry in Ohio. And he was expelled from the Masonry in Ohio, interestingly enough. Well, he arrived in commerce and he rapidly exerted his persuasive leadership in all facets of the church, including Mormon Masonry. I do not believe he was its sole instigator, nor do I believe him guilty of all the Mormon print then or now that have accused him. However, at the instigation of John C. Bennett, George W. Harris, John Parker, Lucius Scoville, as well as other Mormon Masons residing in Nauvoo, and certainly with the approval of the hierarchy of the church, the institution of Masonry began. John C. Bennett is the one that helped get that ball going in Nauvoo. Very interesting. And he wrote, you know, he showed up. He was a nobody. And it, he became second in command over the entire church within just one year. He, his influence, he meteorically rose. And then he, as fast, fell. It was a fascinating era. That, that could make a video all by itself uh, on the truly 
miserably lousy way that Joseph Smith read people. <laughs> it's true. He, he believed in friends. Yes, we get that. Uh, but man, sometimes he really was too easy on people. He, he misread them and misunderstood them. All they had to do was butter him up and flower him up and praise him a little bit, and he gave them everything. And then they turned around and caused nothing but problems. But, see, you can argue that that's based on Joseph Smith's ego, right? Egos love to get stroked, and Bennett caught on to that psychology pretty quick. And, man, did he use that. Well, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours was, so to speak, the theme. Well, Joseph and Sidney Rigdon. Now, see this again. This historical detail. We have this evidence here. Oh, uh, uh, can you leave links of what you're reading in the description of the video? I, I will try to. Yes, I apologize. This is... Uh, you can find this online very easy. Just type in Reed C. Durham, Joseph Smith, Masonry, and this will come right up. And this is the, the name of this, Is There No Help for the Widow's Son? It's the, it's the full talk. A, a Mason by the name of Mervyn B. Hogan, he's somewhat controversial, uh, the Research Lodge of Utah, he's the one that posted this. He has a brief one-page introduction to this Durham piece. But thank you for asking. Yeah, it's, it's pretty important. I, I will try like crazy to leave the description. So so uh, Joseph and Sidney Rigdon were inducted into formal masonry at sight. Now, and this is quite unusual, right? So. This just doesn't happen <laughs> very often, but they were. Uh, on the same day upon which the Illinois Grand Master Mason and politically ambitious, and, and I think this is pretty well understood. The guy, his name is Jonas, Abraham Jonas. Uh, he, he was politically motivated and he saw a chance to, well, I mean, you know, you visited Nauvoo in 1842, right? By 1842, Nauvoo was really well established, and, and people could see, wow, this group of people are for real. So, of course, the politicians are going to kowtow to Joseph Smith. So he wanted to get, he wanted to curry political favor, right? So part of that process, of course, was to say, oh, skip the, skip the, uh, you know, the month or two. Uh, waiting period. Let's just make you guys Freemasons right now. And he was hoping to get their vote, right? So there's some give and take here. Kind of interesting. And that's why he installed the Nauvoo Lodge. He gave the Mormons what they wanted. Now, John C. Bennett, of course, was very influential in that also. And it was on March 15th, 1842. On the next day, both Sidney and Joseph advanced to the master mason degree. And that is, I mean, damn. 
you know, uh, it, it is normally the practice to be, there are three basic degrees in masonry craft and, and, uh, oh, God, I'm having a brain fart. It's been too long since I've been there. I think it's the fellowship and then the master to just be given the, the master degree overnight. Uh, wow. Now here's the thing in a few short years, five Mormon lodges were established. Wow. I I'm serious. That's impressive because of the anti-Masonic fervor due to the William Morgan murder due to his expose of masonry and Americans didn't like it at all. You know, it had come from overseas, you know, the grand lodge, the big grand lodge 1717 was the official beginning of Freemasonry. And, uh, so there were very, very few Masons in America. Some estimates say there were only 2,000 existing in Joseph Smith's day um, because of this anti-Masonic fervor. And Dan Bogle has written the idea of the anti-Masonic Book of Mormon. Now, Martin Harris, one of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, called the Book of Mormon the anti-Masonic Bible. Yeah, And Martin Harris was also... Mason. I mean, everybody around Joseph Smith, you guys, were Masons. Everybody. Masonry and Mormonism went hand in hand. This is not what you learn in Sunday school, is it? I didn't. So uh, now, now this is the point. There was a Masonic temple constructed also in Nauvoo. And the total membership of Mormon fraternal brethren, the total membership of Mormon Masons became 1,366. Almost doubled Masons in America in just one city, Nauvoo. The Mormons completely welcomed and embraced masonry. And it doesn't matter what the more modern Mormon church thinks about that. They are wrong to say that didn't happen or to downplay the significance or the parallels or the philosophy or the ideology because they want everything from Joseph Smith to be pristine, unique, and original. See, that's Nibley's approach. How could Joseph Smith have known this anciently? Right? Easy. It's in Freemasonry. How could Joseph Smith known about the Egyptian five points of fellowship? Well, he didn't. He didn't have to. He had it in Masonry. That's what Nibley skipped. It's so much easier to get it when all of your neighbors are right there with it. And yet Nibley skips over that. Durham didn't. Durham was made of better historical stuff than Nibley. Much more honest. Now, here's the thing. 
there is absolutely no question in my mind that the Mormon ceremony, which came to be known as the endowment, it was introduced by Joseph Smith to Mormon Masons initially, so that just a little over one month after he became a Mason, he had an immediate inspiration from Mason. Oh, the endowment. Sorry, I skipped a line. The Mormon ceremony, which came to be known as the endowment, introduced by Joseph Smith to Mormon Masons initially, just over one month after he'd become a Mason, had an immediate inspiration from Masonry. There, that, I got to read it right, right? Sorry. Okay, now this, and this is important because Durham is qualifying this as a legitimate historian will, should, and ought to do, Durham steps up to the plate and he does this properly, right? Look, we're after credible history, all right? It's not a matter of, well, is it true or not? Does this mean Joseph Smith's a false prophet? Does this mean Joseph Smith's a true prophet? None of that bullshit noise matters at this point. We want to see the historical view, okay? So quit worrying about testimony or anti-testimony or whatever the heck you want to call it. That's not even the issue. This is not to suggest that no other source of inspiration could have been involved. But we are tied to the similarities between the two ceremonies. They are so apparent and overwhelming that some dependent relationship cannot be denied. Now, Durham's being realistic here. And that's just the fact, period. That, that, that is how it is. So they are so similar, in fact, that one writer was led to refer to the endowment as celestial masonry. Uh, guys, that's, that, that's direct, isn't it? Wow. So it's also obvious that the Nauvoo temple architecture itself was in part directly Masonically influenced. It appears that there was an intentional attempt to utilize Masonic symbols and motifs. The sunstones, the moon, and the star stones were examples. An additional example was the angel used on the weather vane on the top of the temple. Now, you thought that was Moroni, didn't you? Uh-huh. Why did you think that? Because the Mormon church told you. Here's some interesting trivia for you then. He shows a slide at this point. And I don't have this picture. I'm sorry. I can try to find it, but I'm sure it's findable. Now, William Weeks, uh, he was made a mason in the Mavu Lodge, and he was also the architect of the Mavu Temple in Joseph Smith's day, okay? So he has many drawings in the historian's office of the church. This is one of the preliminary drawings. He's showing the, the drawing, the first drafts of the Nauvoo Temple. You will notice that it has the beautiful picture in the whole front of the temple of the all-seeing eye. There you go. That's the one on the other side of the $1 bill, the all-seeing eye. That is pure Masonic. Well, Joseph Smith adapted that onto the temple, 
Wow. You will notice he was going to have a beautiful angel stand on the top of the temple. So another design by William Weeks a little later, again, he modified the all-seeing eye. He trimmed down the angel on top of the temple. And then again, in another plan, he has the small angel on the top of the temple. Now, in the visitor center, and this is so crazy. Okay, here comes one of the parts where I take issue with the church. I mean, today, <laughs> this, this is huge. Hopefully, they're overcoming this ridiculous problem, but this is huge. So in the visitor center at the Nauvoo Restoration, you see a mock-up of the temple, and on the very top there is on the weather vane is this little angel. Well, that little angel was photographed. In the next picture, there's the angel, the beautiful horn, the Book of Mormon, in the other hand. And then if you'll notice what looks like, there's crosses on the staff or the spear, which is the weather vane itself. Now, do you see these crosses there? He's describing the slide. I apologize. I couldn't find that. Dang it. We blew that up. He enlarged it. And it's a beautiful compass and square in the typical Masonic fashion on that angel. The next morning after Durham gave this speech, the church removed that angel and the pictures from the visitor center. Flipping dolts and idiots, aren't they? It just astonishes me. You know what I mean? I, I, come on, you coward liver lily pansies. You're so scared of history. You want to make it your own view, and it has no evidence, and you'll squelch and suppress the evidence, and you won't let anybody else see the reality. And you claim your restoration of the truth. And you wonder why so damn many of us have become skeptical Mormonism? Time for you guys to maybe get a revelation to discover why. That could help. Well, again, in the journals of Thomas Bullock and Mosiah Hancock and many other portraits, they were painted of the temple. The angel does exist with a beautiful description of the angel, even to the book, the horn, the temple clothes, and the robes that it's clothed with. And there is no question that it was intentionally to be a Masonic symbol at the top of the Nauvoo Temple. It was not Moroni. Here's to real history, huh? So, again, another development in the Nauvoo Church, which has not been so obviously considered as Masonically inspired was the establishment of the Female Relief Society. And I thought this was... Now, uh, when I when I was a Mason, I became real good friends with Arturo de Hoyos, who was the Grand Master Historian of Masonry at the time. And uh, there were guys in my lodge that were just blown away that Arturo de Hoyos and I became friends and were talking. I mean, they just, they dang near worshiped me because everybody knows who Arturo de Hoyos is. The man is real good. 
I mean, real good. Nick, Le Nick Leturski and Joe Steve Swick, fabulous Masons, uh, got to know Arturo de Hoyos. And their book is hopefully going to come out. Cheryl Bruno told me just, yeah, it's been a few months ago, that it was supposed to come out this year on the significance of Mormonism, Masonry, and Joseph Smith. And it's been in the works for like 15 years. So it's going to be a well of a book. But I know it's going to have the accurate depictions of Masonry because I became good friends with all these guys. And the reason I'm telling you this is because this is where Joseph Smith began to get in trouble with the Masons. And Arturo de Hoyos has done a lot of research into this. That's why I brought up his name. Uh, he's got a... Uh, hold on, hold on. This is really important. He's got a really good book. He's got a lot of good books, uh, but one of his best, and he and he he personally made sure I got this book. It means a lot to me to have this book. Oh, come on. I know I've got it. Just hang on. Just one sec. I promise this is worth it. Arturo de Hoyos did a lot of material on the symbolism of uh, masonry, uh, he did commentaries on Albert Pike. Oh, crud. Come on, come on. Asking you shall receive. The scripture is true. Now, this is uh, Albert Pike's book, Esoterica. Phenomenal book, Arturo de Hoyos. The Symbolism of the Blue Degrees of Freemasonry. De Hoyos went through step-by-step step discussing all of the symbolisms of the Blue Degree Masonry uh, with Ronald Seal giving the foreword. And this was in 2008. When I read this book, you guys, I contacted Arturo. And... I, I just flat out asked him, I said, what the hell are you doing? I'd been a Mason for a couple of years, you know. And I actually got to where I could ask him some really good personal questions. And I learned a boatload from him, him and Joe Swick. And I said, what? You, you have literally revealed everything about Masonry in this book. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get disowned. You're going to get thrown out. Disfellowshipped, excommunicated, whatever the hell you want to call it. I said, you're too valuable to the craft. Why did you write this book, Arturo? And he goes, oh, no. I talked to the Grand Council, the World Grand Council in Freemasonry, and they told me to throw anything in this book I wanted to. So I threw it all in there, including the exposés of the later 1800s against Freemasonry from former Masons. And he put four of those in here. But he step-by-step -step systematically describes and he shows the pictures of the symbolisms of Hiram Abif, the handshakes, the penalties, the tokens, the philosophy, all of the history, the concepts. It is electrifyingly fabulous. By the way, he did get his uh, degree from BYU, the Hoyles did. And he said, no, all of that's completely approved, Kerry.
He said, I promise it's all good. It's okay. Thank you for your concern, good brother. But no, it's all good. Wow, what a book. So where was I before I got excited about my friendship with, with the Hoyos, who, who was absolutely magnificent man? I haven't heard from him for a few years. I hope he's okay. So this Relief Society, now this Female Relief Society, and this, this of course, now Masonry, of course, is for men. Now there are auxiliary women organizations in Freemasonry, right? But really, Masonry is a boys club, a man's club. Joseph Smith bringing in the wives and the women and forming them as the priesthood for females in the same room that they were made Masons to complete the symbolism that now the women are also Masons with their husband. Well, this is what the Grand Lodge of Illinois kicked the Mormons out of Masonry and took away their license, right? Because this, no, that doesn't work. But Joseph Smith went his own way anyway, and he said, tough luck. This is how I'm doing it, because I've received a revelation. This is how it's really supposed to be. There's a clue to the early Mormon view of Freemasonry. Remarkably, fantastically interesting. So there, the second type of unorthodox female masonry was known as adoptive masonry. Uh, in this order, the highest woman was called the elect lady. Now, where have you ever heard that before? The highest woman officer in masonry, in the adopted masonry, was called the elect lady. Well, that's what Emma Smith was called. Very interesting, right? This is a striking parallel to her title in the Mormon highest order for women. The ceremonies for women in this order were quite similar to those later found within the endowment ceremony of the Mormons themselves. So uh, most of the things which were developed in the church at Nauvoo, these were inextricably interwoven with masonry in addition to the endowment, the temple, and the Relief Society. I suspect also that the development of Prayer circles. Did you know there was one in masonry? Oh, yeah. Prayer circles. No joke. I can testify. I've experienced them both. And even polygamy are no exceptions. But more importantly, I suggest that enough evidence presently exists to declare that the entire institution of the political kingdom of God, including the council of the 50, the living constitution, the proposed flag of the kingdom, and the anointing and coronation of the king had its genesis in connection with Masonic thought and ceremonies. 
It's all here. <laughs> wow. No wonder Durham got in trouble. The church doesn't want you to know Joseph Smith was anointed king, that they started the political kingdom and that they were going to overthrow all the other tyrannical kingdoms. You think Mormonism would be comfortable sharing that? Of course they squelched it in favor of what? Not the truth. You see... Have they not betrayed Joseph Smith's vision? And have they not betrayed the kingdom of God? Those are some tough questions to ask, aren't they? But we have to ask them based on the historical materials that we now possess. So this is amazing. It could not be a coincidence that all these concepts had their counterparts within masonry in the day of the prophet Joseph Smith. There was an elect council, an elu, and a council of 50. There was a supreme council and a grand council. The crown was a common Masonic symbol as well as a portion of the regalia actually worn by the officers who represented the king in the highest degrees. It's the clothing in the temple endowment. Anointing was commonly performed, and any practicing mason would have been familiar with the word constitutions. Indeed. I mean, wow. You know, for the modern Mormon scholars to say, oh, well, yeah, there's just a few, just a couple of superficial parallels. That's a lie. They obviously are doing apologetics, not honest historical scholarship. Right? I'm telling you. Perhaps the single most definitive evidence now that masonry directly affected the thought of Joseph Smith and that the kingdom of God doctrine was the kingdom of God doctrine was directly inspired by masonry. Uh, you guys, this is huge. This is huge. You weren't told this in seminary or in institute. And you damn sure haven't heard it in church. And you haven't read it either, hardly. Wow. This is an earthquake, man. This can be seen recently brought to light holograph letter of Joseph Smith to Mr. John Hull of Lempster, New Hampshire. And in this letter, this is probably one of the most amazing revelations yet that we have on Joseph. Now, of course, this is 1974. Hopefully, some of you haven't read it so that this might be interesting enough that you've stuck around. There, it looks like there's, oh my gosh, I have my biggest audience ever. 
Thank you for all joining. Y'all came just in time. I'm about to read to you one of the most mind-boggling letters Joseph Smith ever wrote, and I'm not kidding. And it was about masonry and its basis of the kingdom of God, which Joseph Smith claimed as secretly anointed king to be the head of which he acquired from Freemasonry. Here's the letter. If you're not sitting down, sit your butt down. You're going to want to. This is, wow. Okay. Now, he wrote this to Mr. Hull. And I will read fully what, how Durham describes this. Mr. Hull was a distant cousin of Joseph Smith, and he was a congregational minister. So he was deeply involved in the development of the town government of Lempster, New Hampshire, and more pertinent, he was a practicing Mason for over 40 years in Mount Vernon Lodge number 15 then at Washington, now at Newport, in New Hampshire. Well, during that time, he held every office in masonry up to and including the worshipful master of the lodge. So he knew his masonry, right? So this letter from Joseph Smith to this guy, he's writing to the expert mason here. Joseph Smith is describing his understanding of the masonic basis of the kingdom of God, and this will blow your minds. If the letter proves not to have actually been written by Joseph Smith, and so far as I know it hasn't, his amanuensis wrote the letter and signed Joseph Smith's signature in such a way as to make it appear authentically like Joseph Smith's own handwriting as possible. I personally discount any fraudulent intent because of the reliable historicity relating to Joseph Hull. And also because the content of the letter here fits with the known ideology of the restoration movement, which Joseph Smith was working in. And further, the ideas expressed were completely consistent with the kingdom of God development in Mormonism at this time. Okay, so that makes sense. So the little note at the commencement of the letter indicates somewhat the depth of ideas presented in this letter. Please not let any see my letters who you think cannot digest the ideas, for it would do them an injury. So this is serious stuff. Now here's what Joseph Smith had to say. The entire two-page letter clearly demonstrates that Mormonism and Masonry were related and that Joseph used Masonry and apparently had no qualms in doing so. It is also clear in the letter that the kingdom of God was thought to be the true Masonry, which, when ultimately established with a king and a president would abolish all earthly confusion and evil and usher in the millennium. The whole earth 
was compared symbolically to a Grand Masonic Lodge. The counterpart of which was the Grand Lodge in the eternal regions of glory, an idea quite legitimate in Masonic thought. The letter will not be completely clear unless one knows that a typical Masonic Lodge is most often a rectangle-shaped room with an altar in the center, okay? At the front, at the east end of the rectangular lodge room in masonry, is the platform where the worshipful master of the lodge sits and presides, okay? At the west end, the other end, the senior warden is positioned, and on the south side is located the junior warden. As excerpts of Joseph Smith's letter are read, please observe how the prophet superimposed American Zionism upon his new brand of perfect worldwide masonry. And I quote, The time has been when the worshipful master was in Asia, at the east, the senior warden in Europe at the west, and the junior warden in Africa at the south. Well, now, how will it be after the new arrangements? I must still look to Asia to find the worshipful master well. What next? Why, there is a spot in North America, exactly due west from where King Solomon's temple stood. Just a point here, if we were to draw a line exactly west from Mount Moriah in Jerusalem and go due west to Nauvoo, Illinois, we would only be 10 longitudinal degrees off. So the prophet writes, exactly due west from where King Solomon's temple stood, there is a spot in North America. It will be the choice of our senior warden, but he alone can't govern the lodge amid all this bustle. Well, how shall we get out of this scape? Why, we must wait with patience until South America has made the choice of the junior warden, who is in the South. When the above-described lodge is duly formed and begins to work, we may expect to have peace on earth and goodwill to men, and no doubt the lion will lie down with the lamb, and the suckling child will play with the asp, and will not be stung. And the postscript at the bottom of the letter says, This is my present survey of masonry in this world. <laughs> so there are two concepts here that I need to point out to reiterate. 
First, I said that Joseph Smith had no qualms about using masonry. Well, this letter, I think, is evidence of that. There's no question. One historian has described this use of masonry as the grabbing on principle employed by Joseph Smith. This was explained to me that whatever was in his surroundings being preached or professed or even practiced, it didn't matter, Joseph Smith sometimes borrowed it and incorporated it into his ideological theology and system. Okay, so that's point number one. The second concept I wish to reiterate is that the Masonic, is that the Masonry, sorry, as practiced in the church under the prophet's direction was daily becoming increasingly unorthodox as contrasted with the Illinois traditional masonry. And that is true. Therefore, it appears that the prophet first embraced masonry, and then in the process, he modified, he expanded, he simplified some things, he amplified or he glorified other things. His alterations were done by the authority of constant revelation, which he believes he received, or by sheer whims and the intelligence of an egocentric genius. Oh, I bet that got him in trouble with the CES. Or at the insistence of strong personalities who surrounded him, giving advice and counsel, depending on how you view Joseph Smith. I personally think it could, could have been a factor of all of it, right? In any case, these two concepts now, and, and this, this is what made Durham's paper so good to me, is because these two concepts explain it so very well. Uh, it just makes sense for Pete's sake. <laughs> Come on, wake up and smell the historical dandelions. It's obvious when you finally see it. You can't help but ask yourself, how in God's name did I even miss that? Right. So the idea of the grabbing on and then the idea of the expansion seems to be further substantiated by the following statements relative to masonry in the church, which were expressed by some of the prophet's closest contemporary neighbors and friends and church leaders and brothers and fellow councilmen and apostles and state presidents and bishops and members. Heber C. Kimball, wrote to Parley P. Pratt when Pratt was over in England. Only three months after Joseph Smith had embraced masonry, and here's what Kimball told Pratt. He said, we have received some precious things through the prophet on the priesthood, which would cause your soul to rejoice. I cannot give them to you on paper, for they are not to be written, so you must come and get them for yourself. We have organized a lodge here of Masons since we have obtained a charter. That was in March, and since that, there have been nearly 200 who have been made Masons. Brother Joseph and Sidney were the first uh, that were received into the lodge, all of the 12 have become members except Orson. He hangs back, but he will wake up soon. There is a similarity of priesthood in masonry. 
Brother Joseph says masonry was taken from the priesthood, but has become degenerated. But many things are perfect. I think it will result in good. The Lord is with us and we are prospered. Hebrews C. Kimball later wrote, We have the true masonry. The masonry of today is received from the apostasy which took place in the days of King Solomon and David. They have now and then a thing that is correct, but we have the real thing. Now that's Hebrew C. Kimball's understanding. Joseph Fielding, he was a convert as well as a missionary from England. He wrote in his diary, I believe he was the nephew of Hiram Smith. Many have joined the Masonic institution. This seems to have been a stepping stone for preparation for something else, the true origins of masonry. This I have also seen and rejoice in it. There has been great light poured out upon the saints of late and a great spirit of hearing. I have evidence enough that Joseph is not fallen. I've seen him after giving, as he said before, the origin of masonry, the kingdom of God on the earth, and am myself a member of it. And finally, Jesse C. Little reported, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord brought to Mr. Smith the lost key words of several degrees which caused him, when he appeared among the Brotherhood of Illinois, to work right ahead of the highest and to show them their ignorance of the greatest truth and benefits of masonry. Wow. So I believe he accepted masonry because he genuinely felt he recognized true ancient mysteries contained in masonry, and that in light of two fundamental concepts already established within the theological framework of Mormonism, and those concepts are the restoration of the gospel and the dispensation of the fullness of times. We all understand that's what he was working under, right? Joseph was under the strong compulsion to embrace masonry. The prophet believed that his mission was to restore all truth and then to unify and weld it all together into one. This truth was referred to as the mysteries, and these mysteries were inseparably connected with the priesthood. The prophet further sermonized that these mysteries were to be discerned, unlocked, unraveled, and appropriately unfolded unto the church, line upon line, by the one who holds the keys of the holy priesthood. Therefore, if masonry in reality contained any of the true ancient mysteries, it would have been necessary for Joseph to accept it. The philosophical and the more reflective Masonic scholars have always believed that the symbols embodied in Masonry were indeed the ancient mysteries in coming from remote antiquity. That was the ideology here, right? 
The mysteries were said to be traced back through the Hermetic philosophers, through Plutarch, the Kabbalah, the Pythagoreans, the Magi of Media, to Babylonia, to Chaldea, and Egypt. And as these mysteries came down into the modern institution of Masonry, the 12th and the 13th centuries AD, they had experienced so many progressive alterations that merely remained only an imperfect image of their original brilliancy. See, my assumption is that Joseph Smith believed he was restoring Masonry's original pristine brilliancy and that he was recreating the mysteries of the ancient priesthood. You see how that differs from the church's claim that he was only restoring Jesus's original church? No, no, no. Joseph Smith went all the way back to Adam, just like Masons did, because he was restoring true Masonry. And for whatever reason, the dinglings in Salt Lake City don't like that. So they censor it, they squash it, they threaten scholars who teach that, etc. That's so stupid because the evidence is so powerful. Joseph Smith absolutely took masonry and brought it into Mormonism and used it as the basis for his most important esoteric doctrines and ritual, the Mormon endowment. I mean, wow. <laughs> and he said it was going to cover the whole world as a Masonic lodge. Fascinating. And then he goes off on to the uh, Jupiter talisman. Now, the Jupiter talisman, that, that's probably what got Durham in trouble. In 1974, you could not say Joseph Smith was involved in magic or off with your head. That was serious, serious offense to the Mormon church. Yeah, well, sucks to be the Mormon leadership then who are trying to control history because evidence demonstrates otherwise, right? And I have gone an hour and 35, so I've gone far enough. What I want, and I have other sources, uh, what I wanted to do, there's another really good source. I, I will get to this next week. If you guys are interested in me continuing on this fantastic subject, uh, not... Oh, well, hey, there's Thomas Riscus deconstructing Mormonism. Wow, that was an eye-opener. But that's not what I wanted to get to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Homer wrote an article in Dialogue years ago, Similarity of Priesthood in Masonry, the Relationship Between Freemasons and Mormonism in uh, Dialogue 1994, one of the absolute most complete fascinating, fantastic looks into masonry other than what Joe Steve Swick used to tell me on the phone. We had hours and hours of phone conversations uh, and my my discussions with Arturo de Hoyles. Uh, but there's some information in this that I absolutely, you, you guys will be astounded if, if you want me to, yeah, Joseph Smith restored plagiarism. 
yeah, that's one way to look at it. All right. Uh, there was a lot of problems with all of this. So uh, if, if you don't mind next week, I will continue on with this uh, Freemasonry and magic. Yeah. Yes, I will. Elisa. Absolutely. I will continue on. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Lorena, that, that might be a good, he plagiarized masonry and the Bible and a lot of fiction. That's one way to look at it. Yes. Another way to look at it is he used masonry and put his own ideas into it because he was a Mason where he got into trouble was not putting the signs, tokens, and penalties into the endowment. Where Joseph Smith got in trouble is when he began including women. Then he started getting in trouble, and he did not back down and change it. That's when he got removed from masonry. And he didn't care. He kept on being a good mason. They kept working in the lodge all the way up until the saints were kicked out of Nauvoo and had to run west. True story. Uh, they didn't stop it in 1844, Joseph Smith's death. They kept right on going for two more years up into 1846. So that was really interesting. Oh, thank you, Patty Cake. That's very kind of you to say. This topic is pure magic. <laughs> Keep going. I see what you did there. You are a very punny woman. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Oh, right on, mama. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and AI, Clement, I, you know, it, it's too bad that the bad guys, meaning those who want to control the narrative, have gotten into the leadership of the church. And basically, have you noticed that their controlling of the narrative today is not Joseph Smith's vision at all? So it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Uh, has there been an apostasy again after all? within Mormonism. Now, of course, their own prophets say, no, God won't let us lead you astray. I mean, it's all circular. Who's saying that? Well, we are. We're the prophets. We receive God's word, and he said he will never let us lead you astray. Wow, how convenient, right? <laughs> uh, again, like I say, the evidence is really clear. Uh, it's quite powerful. And and all I did was read Durham. Uh, Homer goes into a boatload more detail in this uh, in so many, many remarkable ways, comparing and contrasting uh, the Mormons with the masonry. And he gives a, a much, see, uh, I mean, Durham did okay. His was, a, his was a public speech to be given in about 45 minutes, right? And so he, of course, just gave it generalities, whereas, uh, this really gives you some livid, nice detail. And I am also in communication with some uh, fellow Masons online, and they are sharing information with me. And I can bring that information in uh, as well, which is, which is really useful and helpful because uh, you're getting the, well, you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth, right? And, and that makes a difference. It really does. You're not getting it from a, a, a biased Mormon who wants Mormonism to be pristine, unique, and original. 
it never was, any more than Christianity was, any more than Judaism was. There is no pristine original anything. Everything has been handed down and more or less plagiarized, changed up, uniquely transformed to fit whatever group that particular religious ritual is involved in. I mean, ancient shamanism is a conglomeration of stuff, as is medieval Christianity, you know. Dante, do you really think his paradise lost and found and all that jazz? Do you really think that was an original pristine material? Of course not. Not any more than the New Testament is. Where did the New Testament come from? The Old Testament, of course. Where did the Old Testament come from? A lot of it is based on what? The ancient Near Eastern mythologies of Mesopotamia, Babylonia, and Egypt, of course, right? The number 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, etc. I mean, you have number symbolism all the time. The presidency of three, Moses and his two counselors, etc. Of course, you always get the number symbolism. But that's in all of the ancient esoteric mysteries. So it's it's a fantastic subject. I personally love the subject. So I don't think BYP can answer if current church leaders are Masons. Alisa, so far as I'm aware, they're not. And they wouldn't be caught dead being, and it is entirely to their loss, in my opinion. They all should be, but I don't know if any of them are. I'm not sure. Uh, it's unlikely. I'll put it that way. I, I agree with you, Doug Vincent. Uh, I don't think Joseph Smith would recognize the church at all today if he saw it. He would wonder, wow, what the heck? Uh, <laughs> Mr. Natural, you cracked me up. Yeah, so do I, but I do it in a different manner. <laughs> when do you find time to read all the books you have? Uh Everyone's given 24 hours, and so it depends on how you prioritize that 24 hours. That's been my answer. Uh, everybody can read absolutely all these books if you decide that's what's important, because everyone has the same amount of time per day, right? I know it's kind of a cop-out, but that's been my response for the last several years because I really do take time to read this stuff because I love knowledge. I love to learn, you know. Hey, that's part of why I became a Mason, I'm quite certain. Although I'm not, I, I haven't been very active in it a whole lot, and and in some in some ways I regret that. I mean, I could go back. I don't know, but Gary, old man, I'm here. Oh, Barry Richens, woohoo! Welcome to the chat. Hey, everybody, say hi to my dear friend Barry Richens. That's excellent. Glad you could get on chat. Yeah. Mm. Now you can have some fun with this wonderful chat family of ours. Yeah, Barry Richens and I. Hey, he has a uh, he has a show on on uh, Delin and with Radio Free Mormon that you ought to watch. You guys, Barry Richens. Everybody, welcome him. He's been trying to get on chat for a while, and we have many good phone conversations. This guy is chock full of knowledge. He's got vast experience, and he's a smart ass, just like me. Sorry, Bear. I didn't mean to tell on you. <laughs> uh, awesome, man. 
Yeah, Barry is not the SCMC, I promise. He's one of us. So, yeah, baby. So, oh, thank you, Mark. I hope everybody, yeah, uh, Richard, if you're talking about masonry, yes, I am a master mason. I truly am. I'm a 32nd degree master mason, actually, in the uh, Scottish Rite. And I've been through the Blue Lodge and the York Rite. Uh, that, that's some fun stuff. It is. They're good brothers. They really are. They're good people. Uh, I just, I, I just haven't kept up with it. Perhaps I'll get back there. So yeah, thanks everybody for welcoming Barry. He's fun. No, I'm not a 33rd. I'm a 32nd, Tim. The 33rd is by invitation only. And if you ask to become one, you are forever forbidden from becoming one. If you're a 33rd degree Mason, that's up to your fellow Masons who agree that you deserve the honorary degree. So don't ask. But the 32nd is one whale of a lot of work and it's a lot of honor. So I'm thrilled to be a 32nd. Yeah. Good stuff. Yes, Art is a 33rd. Arturo de Hoyos is a 33rd degree mace. So is Searle, the man who wrote the forward to his book. Yeah. Yep, they are good people. <laughs> oh, you're going to fit right in here, aren't you, Barry? Yeah, baby. Yeah, well, I uh, could be, yeah, Richard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks, Doug. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it, it's fun. It really is. It is a good brotherhood. I don't think so, Dean Schwenk. <laughs> no, there are no sacrificing goats. Not there anyway. You crack me up. Yeah, yeah, Lorena. There it is. Just love the truth. Uh, it's interesting how the truth will just kind of help you flow through life and you know, there's some things that you won't like, and there's other things that you'll love, and you never want to come down, and then you go back down anyway, and then you want to go back up and all that. But remember, it's not it's not what happens to you that matters, because no matter flipping what, it's going to happen to you. It's how you react that's important. You know, that makes me sound so full of wisdom and I'm so full of bull instead. But hey, I pass along so that I can give this image that I am wise. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a wise something, all right, but I refrain from saying so in public. I'll drink to that. Yeah, baby. Oh, you guys are awesome. You know what? I love these Sunday nights with you guys. You know what? Thank you for being my audience. Thank you for being involved with me. Thanks for coming on this journey of discovery with me. Um, there's always stones to unturn. There's always great books to read. There's always cool articles to study. There's always something new to learn. There's always some kind of a connection that you get during the week, you know. I mean, it could be raining on your head in the middle of your garden, and you're not even thinking about a dang thing, and all of a sudden this thought comes in and in. And you go, oh, I don't think I've ever looked at it that way before. So you hurry up and write it down and all that. That's kind of what helped me. Uh, someone asked me here a few weeks back, several weeks back, if I was going to do some stuff on Freemasonry. Now, tonight was just an introduction. I, boy, there's as much about this subject. 
or if not more than there is about the papyri and the uh, book of Abraham. So it'll be fun. It'll be fun to uh, explore and unfold a bunch of it and kind of get come to a better understanding of all of it uh, and see what, uh, see what we can figure out. It's good to know. Uh, I know Freemasons are great men. They they definitely go out of your way to help you. They did me, I'll put it that way, even when you're in physical trouble. Uh, Freemasons are awesome. They have that, that hospital uh, that they donate a billion dollars a year to, and everybody is allowed in there for free treatment, no matter what the health problem. Now, that's impressive, man. That's awesome. That's how life should be. They have a reverence for life. And, and that rocks, in my opinion. That's a two thumbs up, man. So, yeah, you know. AI chemist, I'm, I'm glad you're here, too. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. You're beautiful, too. Thank you. I've got a lot more knowledge to share with you. So, well, thank you, Mr. Natural. I don't have all the answers. I mean, I can buffalo my way through my own ignorance pretty good, but, you know. <laughs> Follow me only so far, and then you get to take off on your own. That's how that works. So, yeah, yeah. Now the 34th, <laughs> JP. Calm down. All right. Oh, well, thank you, Elisa. Thank you. Well, I feel I feel better and more uplifted after being with you guys. I, I really do. I'm not even kidding. This means a lot to me that you guys enjoy this and appreciate it. And you keep coming back more for my BS. So I keep giving it to you. It's not my fault. <laughs> oh, we have a good time, don't we? Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it's all about. Yeah, man. It does, Dean. Dean Schwank has a great point here. He says, BYP, it feels like a fireside ward family, right? I, isn't that the idea? Hey, we're all in this together. We're having fun. Yeah, we learn a little. Sure, we'll have disagreements. Criminy. We may even actually have a fight or two, but so what? Forgive and forget and move on. We're all just kind of slogging through this anyway, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mr. Rogers' idea. I can't help it, man. It's, and I wasn't a real big Mr. Rogers fan. I watched a couple of them. Not much, but I like you just the way you are. What would that turn the world into if we all really seriously had that, not the words, had the view, had the philosophy, you know? Wow. What a great thing that would be. So, all right. Yeah, I want to look into that too, Doug Vincent. The backstory to Sidney Rigdon, I'll bet that is. I know there's been a few books written on him. I... I I'll tell you what, that could be really, truly included in this series on Freemasonry and Mormonism. I will, and, and I know I have another dear friend, uh, Mike Wagner, who's telling me about William Law that I need to, but all of these personalities, these fantastic personalities that from the church angle, we think we know, but in reality, the history is vastly more complex and interesting. I will look into those guys while I'm doing this series and I'll present some information on them. How's that sound? I, I'd be happy to do that with you guys. Heck yeah. I'd love it. Oh, yikes. 
bloviating hell, I probably could be, right? Yeah, everybody has his own truth to share, but boy, comparing me to Rush Limbaugh, ouch, that hurts. I didn't like him at all. He was a hate monger. I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but no, that's not a good comparison. I don't, I don't accept it. No offense, but I forgive you. Not a big deal. You didn't know better. No, don't compare me to that moron. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Okay. Patty cake. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. BYP is vastly my superior in intelligence, smarts, love, kindness, talent, skills, capabilities. I'm very blessed to have her. So that's a good thing. Yep, fun place. Tim Rathbone, I always appreciate you showing up too. I, I know you have much, much more to contribute than most people think. And uh, yeah. Well, Richard, that's an idea. I'm not against that once I retire. Yeah. Yeah. Not a bad idea. We are a tiny minority here. We are surrounded by hordes of gross barbarians <laughs> onward. Yeah. Woohoo. Ganges BYP and his army. <laughs> We're small but powerful. We're like the uh, 300, aren't we? <laughs> so I don't even know if there's 300 of us, though. But hey, we can fake it. What the heck? I can count one, two, 19, 39, 77, 165, 195, 300. There's 300 of us here. And I can count us all on two hands. <laughs> oh, the glory of math, right? Woohoo. Ah, uh, yeah, baby. There we go. Oh, well, you're very welcome, Deborah Kittredge. Thank you for being here. Thank, that's very nice. Uh, I, I do too. I like this group. I like the fellowship of this group too. Uh, Newton Lemos, are any of the current LDS GA Masons? I, I have not checked into that. I'm not sure. It, honestly, it's probably going to border on unlikely though. Um, they just don't have the capacity to comprehend how wonderful it is. They they have a bad, brainwashed, false impression of them. Yeah. Uh, and they, they don't love their own historical evidences of how the early brethren in Mormonism absolutely thrived, loved, and embraced masonry. Uh, these guys today, the basically clueless, I suspect. I'll be happy to be proven wrong, but it's going to take some pretty good evidence. It'd be cool if they were, but it's unlikely. So anyway. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Humongu. I'm not trying to mispronounce your name. I apologize if I do. Mikamurai. Thank you for being here. Yeah, yeah the, the, the stuff like that happens. Scott Sherry, hey, how are you? <laughs> oh, thank you, Mark. That's very kind of you. Thank you for your donation. Uh, you're saying Russell M. Nelson is a master mason. Okay, I might be wrong. I'll look into that. He might be. That, that would be interesting. Uh I doubt he's very active. He's probably like me if that's the case. But yeah, that'd be cool if he was. It'd be cool if all 12 apostles were too, actually. 
Some GAs used to be Freemasons through Hinckley's presidency, according to Tim Rathbone. That's kind of cool. I, I suspect, I mean, there, there's bound to be some Freemasons in some of the higher parts of Mormonism as well. In early Mormonism, it was absolutely all of the upper echelon who were Masons. And again, that was partly because of the environment. See, when, when the Mormons moved west, uh, Brigham Young and those people, uh, Joseph Smith gave the Masonic cry of distress at Liberty Jail. Oh, Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? And they killed him anyway. The Masons killed him. That pissed Brigham Young off, and I honestly think properly so. That was his understanding of you. So he never renewed the lodge once you got to Salt Lake. So they, the Mormons had become themselves somewhat anti-Masonic for a while. And, and it's gone back and forth. And see, that's that's what I can talk about next week a little bit. It's a little bit more in-depth about not only the symbolisms of the of the uh, the Masonic ideology and the endowment, but I can discuss the history of the, the argument back and forth and all that. But for people to suppress a historian for describing the historical evidence of the actual rich and powerful combination and brotherhood between masonry and mormonism uh to downplay that and then get the historian in trouble you know it makes me not trust the current leadership it makes me wonder what the hell are you so scared of and why are you trying to hide actual history i'm just not impressed the evidence says otherwise, and your authority can't change history. Your authority is powerless. Your mantle is certainly far greater than your intellect, but I've got bad news for you. My intellect trumps your mantle of authority with evidence. That's how I see things. So we go with the evidence, right? So that that's my kind of, a, but yeah. I don't know, Doug. I'll check into that. It was something like that. It could have been, but but they didn't renew the, the Brigham Young decided he did not want to continue masonry. He didn't apply for permission to do a lodge. I mean, there might have been a Masonic building, but I don't think it was a lodge. I'll check into that and see. Door to door. Yeah, it, it's all good. Yeah. I I I thought Rush Limbaugh was more of a hate monger than an informer, and that's why I didn't like him. But, I mean, if you liked him, that's wonderful and great. Awesome. But, uh, no, nah, it's all good. It all washes out. We can't all like all the same people, right? No big deal. No harm, no foul. What do I find cool about the Masons, Pat 1-0? They're willing to bend over backwards to help you out physically, spiritually, and psychologically. They actually do believe in the brotherhood of man and they practice it. That's rock and cool, in my opinion. So that's just a quick answer off the top of my head. I never, I never did have any bad uh experiences with any of them at all while I was at Lodge. So, and that was remarkable in and of itself. I mean, you have a hundred different kinds of personalities, right? So that can get pretty tough sometimes, you know, getting along all together, but it does happen. So anyway. 
became Mason's. Scott Sherry asks a good question. Is there any discussion about how the Book of Mormon is anti-Mason and yet all early leaders became Masons later? There is. My dear and good friend Dan Bogle, a wonderful historian, has described just that. He's got videos and he also has some information in books also. But check out Dan Bogle, D-A-N-B-O-G-E-L. Google search him and then space and put in Book of Mormon space Freemasonry and you'll get some of his videos. Excellent stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Dan Vogel's very good on that. Thanks for asking, Scott. That's a great question. And we do have some great ideas, some great comments. So, oh, thank you, Dork to Dork. You're awesome too, dude. True story. So, <laughs> okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, Dan Vogel's still here. Good. Yeah. No, no. It's all good. Uh, I don't mind touting anybody who's done some real good, damn good research, and you are one of them, Vogel. I've always, uh, I've always loved writing, reading your stuff. I'm not done dealing with you yet. I got more of your crap to share. <laughs> or uh, stuff, I mean, stuff. <laughs> All right, you guys. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. It's been two hours. Thank you for letting me go over. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you, Richard. I'm going to I'm gonna call it good tonight. Two hours is long enough. I don't have anything else to add. I, I love chatting with you guys, though, so I like to stop a few minutes early. <laughs> even though I went over tonight. Uh, fun topic, though. I will continue on next week with this. I will eventually begin to start bringing in some of the magic stuff, too, uh, especially as it relates to the ancient mysteries as well, because that is one of my favorite subjects, and uh, I believe there's a lot to that. Heck, maybe that could go off into a series of five or 600 videos on that. That's inexhaustible. So, Anyway, okay. Next week, same time, same place. Don't forget Wednesday night, Mormonism Live. And don't forget John DeLynn Mormon Stories with Gerardo. He he rocks with some excellent materials as well. And uh, check out the new podcasts on Mormon Discussion, Inc. There is four or five or six new uh, podcasts with a variety of subjects, Uh on human psychology, on spirituality, on what to do about your obnoxious Mormon family member, what to do about your loving Mormon family member, etc. There's all kinds of great materials, history, psychology, philosophy, religion, atheism, science, all of it. Mormon Discussion Inc. is beginning to do it all, man. I'm very grateful I could be a part of that. Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon, you guys are awesome. So are you, Rami Umptum Ruminations, Scott, uh, and all of you others, Almost Awakened, and all of you guys are spectacular. I'm going to go now. Love all you guys. You have a great week. Be safe. Do well. Have fun. Be kind. Make friends. And I will see you in the next Backyard Professor Live. All right, shut up and get off the screen, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah, veganism. I can't forget veganism, patty cake. Woohoo! Let's hear it for veganism. <laughs>